You can open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 7. And by the grace of God, today, Matthew 7 and verse 21 is where we'll begin. Today we will finish our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I'm not sure which number this is, if it's number... I believe this will be number 17, if I'm not mistaken. The 17th entry, 16 or 17, uh, in this series. But we've been covering, covering the Sermon on the Mount. And today, as you can see in the description, the title of the sermon is Go Away. Now, please, don't click to another page right now. Uh, hang on just for a moment, and you'll see why we've given it that title. Let me just refresh your memory quickly on what we've covered so far. Sermon number one. You know that verse where Jesus said, the last shall be first? We actually preached from the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last passage, Matthew seven twenty four down to 27. We started there. That was our first message. It was called groundwork. We laid a little groundwork. Sermon number two, we went to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Get your blessing. The next sermon, good for nothing. We talked about guaranteed greatness that you'll find in the Scriptures. Number five, we talked about going deeper. Going deeper in, into the Bible and into your walk with God. The next sermon, going the extra mile. We got into chapter 6 and looked at how God is watching we talked about our prayer closet. We called it God's guest room. The next passage was about gold diggers, people abusing a knowledge of God or the name of God just to make money. Then we talked about the greatest goal in life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Uh, the next thing, we got into Matthew 7. We talked about having gunk in your eye, right? A beam in your eye while you're trying to pick the moat out of your brother's eye. Next, we had a, a, a unique sermon, Give Not. And we talked about how the, there are pearls and precious jewels. Those are, those are the souls that come to Christ. We don't want to let false preachers get a hold of them, so give not. We talked about getting answers to prayer. We talked about the golden rule. We recently spoke about the gates of life. There, there are two gates. Right, the narrow and, and the broad. And then we talked last week in our public service. We talked about the grapes and figs. And it, that had to do with recognizing false preachers. We talked about the dangers involved with that. Today, we're going to preach a sermon called Go Away. Those woeful words, those horrible words... God forbid you ever hear the Lord say to you, Go away. Let's begin reading Matthew 7 and verse 21. It says here, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many. That's, that's incredible. Many. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Verse 23, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
ye that work iniquity. You can see where the title of my sermon comes from today. At the end of verse 23, Jesus says, depart from me. I think a simpler way to say that, a more common way would be to say, go away. And with that, let's please bow our heads together and let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask in Jesus' name that you'd please help us today. Father, help us to focus on what you have for us in this passage. I pray for the souls of those listening. God, please prick the hearts of those people that are facing this, this massive decision what to do with their eternal soul. God, I, I don't want anybody at the end of, of their life to hear the words from you, go away. Please, God, today save somebody. Please help me, anoint me as I preach. Fill me with your Spirit. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, when you look at what Jesus has said in verse 23, I want you to recognize two parts to it. In verse 23, He professes unto them, "Depart, he, uh, I never knew you, depart from me. Now, there is the eternal aspect of this, right? There is a, a future and an eternal destruction involved. If he says, go away, and the Bible says, off these people go into outer darkness, there's weeping, there's wailing, there's gnashing of teeth, there is this ultimate and utter destruction that a lost soul faces. But let me also show you a present, ongoing destruction that is happening to a lost person. The Bible says that if, if a person has not been saved, then the wrath of God abides, present tense, abideth on him. Look at it in the verse, I'll profess unto them, I never knew you. The present destruction that a lost person is experiencing is the wasting of their life. They are existing in this world. They are physically and naturally alive, but they are dead unto God, and they are not fulfilling their created purpose, which is to have a personal, genuine, intimate relationship with their Creator. They do not know Him. That speaks to the relationship that God desires. When you look at the Bible as a whole, I've heard many people say this, that the purpose of the Bible, the theme of the Bible, is to tell us how to be saved. I do agree that the Bible does tell us how to be saved, but I do not agree that that is the theme or the primary purpose of the Bible. I believe salvation, right? That is part of the narrative. It is a very important part, obviously. But when you look at, at, the, at the very beginning of the Bible, when God creates Adam, He didn't create Adam to save him. Why did God create Adam? Adam was created in God's image. He was created upright with true holiness. He didn't need saving. Why did God create him? To have a relationship with him. He wanted to walk with Adam and with Eve in the cool of the day and enjoy their company while they enjoyed the Lord's. When Adam and Eve sinned, that, that relationship 
was dissolved. And now the need for salvation, yes, it does come into the picture. But what is the purpose of salvation? It is to restore the relationship that God originally intended to have with mankind. Adam messed it up. The first Adam. The the last Adam, Jesus, he comes to restore that which the first Adam destroyed. When Jesus uh, came to the earth, the Bible says, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And this is true. Jesus does come to offer salvation. Jesus said, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. But Jesus offers so much more than just salvation. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. But when he saves us, he reconciles us to God. He He creates a relationship. Salvation makes that relationship possible. So when Jesus came, yes, it was to make salvation possible. It was to provide the necessary payment or sacrifice for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can know God. The Bible says in John chapter 17, verse number 3, that eternal life is the equivalent of knowing God. Those two things go hand in hand. When somebody receives eternal life, they are receiving a relationship with God. Accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior starts the relationship that God so earnestly desires to have with all of you. You read it throughout the Gospels. Jesus came to manifest or to reveal or to declare the Father to mankind. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, at starting at verse 24 to the end, those are, those are His closing statements. He's saying if you're going to build a house, you have to have a good foundation. What is the foundation? It is the words of Christ. That's where it starts. You have to accept what Jesus is revealing. But why is he revealing this? What are we supposed to do with it? Lay the foundation, build the house. What's the house? The house is your relationship. Your relationship, your personal fellowship with God. Have you ever used this phrase? I am building a relationship with so-and-so. Right? We are building a house. The first step to that, get the right foundation. This entire sermon was given to to, to us, to the disciples of Christ, so that we could not only have the proper starting place, a solid foundation, but so that the relationship with God could reach its fullness. That we could experience that fullness of God's presence. Let me run you through it quickly, and I'm going to use some different terminology as I go through this, but just quickly. Look at chapter 5. Turn turn back to chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. You know what this explains? The image of God. You're going to see how every part of the Sermon on the Mount is connected to knowing God. It is connected to that relationship. That's why when Jesus concludes it, He says, here's what I'm afraid of happening. I don't want to say to you, I never knew you. How do we avoid that? Pay attention to what he says in the sermon. Verses 1 to 12, it explains the image of God. 
It explains the characteristics of a godly person. The word godly means godlike. We want to live like our creator. So these are the attributes that would be required in that. It's the image of God. Verses 13 to 16, the importance of God. God cannot be hidden. Don't hide your relationship with God. Verses 17 to 20, we read about inspired revelation. It shows us the emphasis that Jesus puts on the Bible and how it reveals God to us and how it can be trusted. In verses 21 down to the end of the chapter, to verse 48, we, we read about the internal initiator. Jesus says, you've heard other people say this, but I say unto you, and he always goes to the person's heart. The problem starts in the heart. If we're going to have a, a real relationship with God, we have to fix our hearts. In, verse, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, we read about intentions. Not only what are you doing, Right? The, the passage talks about giving, it talks about praying, it talks about fasting. Those are all fine to do, but why do you do it? Do you do it to be seen of men or to be seen of God? Your intentions play a major role in your relationship with God. Chapter 6, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. We read about interference. There are certain things that will interfere with your relationship with God. Here are three of them in the passage. Wealth the world, and worry. Wealth, the world, and worry. Those three things can distract you from fellowshipping with God. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, we, we have a passage about inspection without introspection. We check others before we check ourselves. When God created humanity, he, he created a system of accountability. We can help each other stay on the straight and narrow path. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 5 gives us great information on how to do that properly. I'm skipping verse 6 for now, but I'll come to that in a moment. Verses 7 to 12, we read about intimacy. What do I mean by that? We read about the nature of God and how He listens to us when we pray. We read that when we pray, God is not sitting up in heaven on His throne as the sovereign, all-powerful, almighty ruler of the universe looking for a reason to deny our request. God looks down on us with pity as a loving Father, interested in what we're going through. That is, that is an intimacy that some people don't expect from the almighty creator of the universe. Verse 6 along with verses 13 down to 20, I'm going to say that there is an invasion. There is an invasion. We have these two paths, these two gates to choose from, and there's an invasion of the enemy, of dogs, pigs, and wolves, trying to confuse us. They they take what is clearly said to us by Jesus in the Bible, and, and then they say, but what about this? What about that? They, they skew the knowledge of God. They don't want us to know the real God. Can you see how every part of this sermon, one way or another, it touches on, it is related to our fellowship, our personal fellowship with God. Not just being saved, but then after you have accepted Christ as your Savior, growing 
in your relationship, building a relationship with him so that you know God on a deeper and deeper level the more you go in life. That is the intention of this sermon, not just to save people, but to build that fullness of the relationship. Can I point this out to you as well? In verses 15 down to 20, last week we discussed it. You read about deceivers, right? Deceivers. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Guys, wolves do not put on sheep's clothing accidentally. What we read about in that passage, these people are purposely trying to deceive. And Jesus tells us how to recognize them and to avoid them. But what we have in verse 21, look look at the wording carefully. Verse 21 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, by using the, the, the phrase or the, the two words there, everyone, I believe we have a, a broader scope that's introduced into our thinking. I think the deceivers, the deceivers of the passage before will fit in this category because they might, with pretension, right? They're just doing this to, to fool people. But they might be involved in ministry. They may preach in Jesus' name. They may profess to know the Lord. Now, their, their motives are wrong, right? So I, I think that they, they would fit to a certain extent in what we're reading here. Verse 23, they are workers of iniquity, right? They work iniquity. So, so that crowd would fit. But I believe there's a much broader application. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord... I believe what we've read in this passage today includes not only the deceivers, but the deceived. What do I mean by that? As I read this, it it appears that these people genuinely thought that when they knocked on the door of the kingdom, Jesus would open the door and say, Welcome home, come in. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. They fully expected that they qualified for the kingdom only to find out and to hear this horrible, horrible phrase, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And my fear today is that there are people that are working under the assumption that their lives are acceptable in God's sight. Now, whatever their reason is for thinking that, that there's a multitude of reasons they might think that. But, oh, dear friend, please don't wait until the day of your judgment to find out, oh, that's not acceptable to God. I believe that there are three things we need to consider from this passage, one from each verse. So let's look at verse number 21. First off, I want to say that there is a warning. There is a warning given In verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. I have to say this parenthetically, just just so that we understand what we're reading here. If you were standing there in the crowd the day that Jesus preached this, you would not know anything about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It had not happened yet. Please understand, I want to say, the dispensational aspect of this, the timing of this. If somebody's hearing this on the day Jesus said it, 
then they would realize, they would be thinking, okay, if I want to do the will of my Father in heaven, then I need to apply what Jesus has just told me. I cannot come to God and say, Lord, Lord, accept me based on the way I did it. I have to come to God the way He prescribed, the way He explained. Now, the way I'm going to preach it, right? we understand in Matthew 7, they did not have all the information we have now. They did not have the finished work of Christ. So as I preach this today, I am going to apply what we now know. The principle of verse 21 is still true. The people that heard that on the day Jesus preached it, they would have had to have applied everything from this Sermon on the Mount. They would have to keep pushing towards that standard, and then they're acceptable in that time frame, before the cross. But after the cross, things change. Let me show you where we get this in the Bible. Come to Romans chapter 3. Hold your place in Matthew. Look at Romans chapter 3 with me. Romans 3. And let's look at a couple verses, starting in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. I've had many people use that verse to try to undo Romans 10, verse 13. Now, I'm sure most of you right, know Romans 10, verse 13 by, by heart, right? It says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then people will say, Yeah, but Jesus said you can't just say Lord, Lord. Some would say that's, that's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. You have to take into account that when Jesus said that, right, we didn't have the finished work of Christ, but the principle of what Jesus said is still true. When you approach God, you have to approach Him according to His will, His way. You can't just say, Lord, Lord, and make up your own way of coming to Him. Now, when Jesus came, right, He came to declare a way of salvation, a way of reconciling us to God, and a way of us having a true relationship. Look at Romans 3, verse... We're going to be in 21. Let me just say, throughout the passage, Paul is talking about the law and how the law shows us our guilt. It shows us that we are not able to stand before God and truthfully say, I'm good enough. Verse 21, But now, but now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you see that he says, but now, because Jesus has, has died, he has shed His blood, He's paid for our sins, now we see a way to stand before God and be declared righteous, to be justified. Now the righteousness of God is manifested. Look at verse 26. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So now, because Jesus has paid for our sins, what is He declaring to us? If you want to come to God, the only way to do it is through me, through the sacrifice of my blood. You can see it in verse 25, can't you? Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a payment 
through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness. So now that we have the finished work of Christ, the message is, if you want to come to the Father, you can only do that through Jesus Christ. A man once asked the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He said, what's the will of the Father that I have to do? The will of the Father that someone has to do now is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody asked Jesus even once. He said, what should we do to work the works of God? He said, the work of God is to believe on Him whom God hath sent. That's where it starts. Accepting the one God sent. So when we read in Romans 10, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Folks, you cannot just pray to Jesus and make up your own stipulations and say, because I have prayed to Jesus... That means I am now saved. Many people pray to God, but they don't talk with God. Does that make sense? They pray to God. They say things to God. God do this. God do that. God help with this. God that. But they didn't listen to what God had to say to them. Many people have prayed and said, Lord, save me. But they didn't understand what they needed to be saved from. They didn't know what Jesus was truly offering them. So how could they accept the offer that has been made? They didn't hear Him out. Many people pray and say, Oh God, save me from all the mistakes I've made in life. Save me from this sickness I have. Save me from debt. Many people say, Lord, Lord, without understanding what the gospel is all about, that you've sinned, you've fallen short of God's glory, you have, you have broken His laws, you deserve to be punished. Jesus took your punishment in your place. And the only way to be saved and reconciled to God is by accepting what Jesus has done for you. That makes you right in the, in the sight of God. That allows you to have that relationship. It allows you to be born again. Jesus laid down His life so that you could have life. Let me show you this. Come to Continue to hold Matthew, but come to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You must understand what is being offered. How many times I've asked somebody, if you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? People say, well, I, I think I am. And I say, why do you think you are? Well, I pray. And uh, I talk to God. And I... They say, they say something to the effect of, you know, God and I have an arrangement. What they mean is, they went to God with their plan and said, God, here's what I need you to do for me, and here's what I'm willing to do for you. And they said something to God. They said, Lord, Lord. That doesn't qualify you for the kingdom. Look at John chapter 1, verse number 12. But as many as received Him, the Him is Jesus, to them gave He power to become, now watch it, to become the sons of God. That's the new birth. Even to them that believe on His name. What does it mean to receive Jesus? It's the equivalent of believing on His name. But when He came, He explained to us everything involved with who He is. You can't just profess the name of Jesus and create your own backstory for Him. 
You can't profess the name Jesus and say, here's what I think Jesus will do for me. Look at verse 13. Which were born, right? That's the new birth. Born again. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They're born of God. Watch it now. Not of blood. You cannot say, I am saved and I have a a genuine relationship with God because I was born into a Christian family. All my grandparents were Christians. My mom and dad were Christians. I was raised in a Christian home. I'm Christian. Then you're you're counting on your physical bloodline to somehow transfer salvation to you. That's not how it works. The new birth does not happen that way. It says, nor of the will of the flesh. You can't say, God, look at all of my efforts. Look at, I have good intentions. I'm trying to do good things. Surely this will earn me the new birth. That's not how it works. It says, nor of the will of man. You can't say, well, so-and-so gave me this advice, and I'm, you know, this preacher said I should do that and this good thing, so I'm applying that. That's their plan. That may not be the plan of God. What do you have to do? You have to come to God and say, God, what must I do to be saved? When Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, right, what did Jesus say to him? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. How do you receive it? You have to accept what God has revealed. God has revealed that His righteousness is available by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus couldn't have made it clearer when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me, which ties perfectly with what Paul wrote to Timothy. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You cannot make up your own way to God. Say, well... My opinion is just as good as yours. You're right, it is, but it's not as good as God's. God said, there's one way to me, and it's through my Son. Let me show you another thing back in Matthew 7. So the warning is, the warning is, do not think that because you did the best you could according to your plan, and because you prayed to Jesus based on what you thought He would do, that makes you uh, acceptable for the kingdom of God, for a relationship with God. That's not the case. You have to come on His terms. You have to come according to the will of the Father, not the will of the flesh or the will of man. Verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, By the way, that word many, do you remember that from verse 13? Many there be which go in thereat. That that broad gate, that broad way, that wide gate, many. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. First of all, there's a warning. Secondly, I think we can learn from this passage that many people are trusting their works to gain them entrance into the kingdom. They believe that through the wonderful things they're doing, they will somehow earn salvation. There's a very simple saying that presents a clear truth. If you could earn your salvation, why would Jesus need to die? Please think about that. You say, well, I believe you got to live it. I believe you got to do this and this and this. I believe in living it. 
I believe in doing these wonderful works. There's nothing wrong with what you've read in the verse. Prophesying, which is preaching in Jesus' name. Casting out devils. The wonderful works are a reference to miracles, actually. Is there anything wrong with those things? No, the apostles did all of that. There's nothing wrong with it. But to think that I have a relationship with God and I'm going to be saved because I do these things, that's wrong. That's wrong. Many, many people would look at this. right Now, let's be honest, folks. The people of verse 22, that's not your average Christian. The modern-day average Christian is incredibly lukewarm and would never think of being involved in public ministry, going out and preaching publicly, telling others about Christ. Very few uh, professing believers live up to the information in verse 22. But would you agree with me to say, if I said this, that people would look at somebody like the many of verse 22, they're preaching, they're, they're busy in the ministry. I understand this is more of an apostolic setting with this ministry, but you look at people that are busy in the ministry, preaching and, and helping folks and that type of thing. We would say, if we were to ask, is that man saved? You would say, well, you know, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. Look at all the stuff he's doing. That is evidence that he is saved. Many would approach it like that. Say, look at the works. The fruit proves he's saved. Now let me ask you, is that true in verse 22? They had the right fruit. Now granted, if they are part of the deceivers, then, then they are doing this for the fame and fortune, then obviously their intentions are wrong and that makes it bad. But what if there are people with good intentions? Right? What if they honestly were trying to help? but they were trusting their works. They would say, well, look at the fruit. The fruit proves I'm saved. Be careful. If somebody's saved, will they have fruit? Then we should expect that, yes. And the fruit weighs into our, can I say, uh, judgment of that person? Our conclusion of that, when we look at that, we would say, well, based on what I can see, I, I mean, there's a good chance based on that fruit he, he might be saved. But the Lord looks on the heart. There's more to salvation than just the fruit. I think people trust what they call fruit as the means of their salvation. I'll give you an anecdote to prove this. I was speaking with a, a young man not too long ago. Well, now it's been several months ago, but... Uh, I was speaking to him there in the build. And this gentleman, he was part of one of the three sister churches. You know, I think he was a doper, but whatever the case was. He, I asked him, sir, are you saved? And he said, yeah, I, I, I believe I am. I said, well, what, what makes you think that you're saved? He said, well, I look at the fruit of my life. I look at the way I live. I think I live a pretty good life, so I must be saved. I said, have you ever personally asked Jesus to save you? Has there ever been a day where you said, I need a Savior? He said, no, because I've always been like this. I've always lived this kind of a good life. I said, well, let me ask you this. What if a few years from now you change your mind about the way you live and you start to live wrong? Then what would you say? He said, well, then I would look at it and say that I must not be saved. 
Now, his idea was that God had already decided whether or not he'd be saved. But how did he know? What was he trusting for his salvation? He was looking at what he was doing and trusting that. By the end of our conversation, he realized there was a difference between looking at the evidence to see if he had made a a, a right decision and trusting the evidence as the means of his salvation. Make sure that you get the order right. Make sure that there is salvation first, that you have trusted Christ and Christ alone, not your good works to save you. If you have trusted Christ alone, and if you are genuinely worshiping God in spirit and in truth, the fruit will take care of itself. Can I ask you to turn your Bible to Galatians chapter 4? I want to show you quickly a passage I think that makes this very clear. I'm going to use this, use this passage to illustrate this truth. Some people are serving God so that they can become sons of God. And then we have people that are sons of God, and because they are born again, they serve God. Do you, do you see the order? You say, well, all the ingredients are there. They're servants. They want to be sons. It's all there. If you cannot achieve sonship through service. You cannot. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. It starts with that. Look at Galatians 4, verse number 5. We're speaking about Jesus coming into the world to redeem them that were under the law that, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Notice how these things go together. Redemption, which is paid for, right? with the blood of Christ, redemption brings about the new birth. It it makes us part of God's family. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now this relationship has been established. Verse 7. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. You say, oh, then if, if I'm a son, I don't have to be a servant. That's not what Paul's saying. You're no longer simply a servant. You are now a son that serves. Thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Verse 8, Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Verse, verse 9, But now, after that ye have known God, or rather, are known of God, How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? Now, the point that Paul's making is much broader than what I'm trying to illustrate today. So I'm just want I want you to really see in verse nine. You, because of redemption, which is trusting the blood of Christ to pay for your sins, that brings about the new birth, which is also right equals knowing God. It is the start of this relationship with Him. And not only do you know God on His terms, you've accepted the revelation He gave of Himself, but now you are known of God. What does this mean? Jesus can never say to you, I never knew you. If you have been born again and you've been redeemed, then that means you have a relationship. That means God does know you. 
he, you'll never hear those horrible words, depart from me, I never knew you. In Luke chapter 15, you don't have to turn to it, but you know that there's a, a parable with the prodigal son. Now, there are three groups mentioned there besides the father. You have the father at home, but then you have the older brother who stays at home. You have the younger brother who heads off to the far country. And there's also servants mentioned in the passage. Two are sons, right? Two groups are sons. And the one person is a group in this case. And then there's servants. The servants are just servants. They are not sons. When the prodigal son comes home, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. You know, I find in that parable some great application to how, well, to Christendom. I I see it like this. We have some people that have been born again and then head off to the far country. Are you a child of God? Yeah, but you're living in a pig pen and you know who you are. The Father patiently waits for you to get your life right. Come back. Reestablish a connection with Him. You don't need to be saved again. You need to come home and apologize to your Father for wasting His goods in the far country. Then you have some children of God who have never left the Father's house, but they have a bad attitude. They have a bad attitude about what the father does. They don't like what the father does. They have a bad attitude about their younger brother and what he's done and how he's uh, trying to get on with his life. They just have bad attitudes. He's a son, but he wasn't serving, was he? He wasn't serving. And then we have servants that are not sons. In that parable, it's interesting. What we don't have is a son that serves. And we read this in the book of Malachi. Malachi 3.17 says, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. You know what God wants? For his sons, his children to serve. He wants sons that serve. I'll come back to Matthew 7, and we're going to finish up in verse number 23. Matthew 7 and verse 23. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Those woeful words. Those woeful words. The Bible says many, many are going to hear it that day. And for many, it is going to come as a complete surprise. They fully expected on the day of their judgment that they would be accepted. I read in Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it, from whose face heaven and earth fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was written in the books. One day, friend, you might find yourself standing before God. And he'd ask you, how do you plead? And you would say, well, judge, I plead not guilty. And the judge says, based on what? And you might be tempted to say, well, just look at what I've done. Verse 22, look look at, I talked about you. I believed that you were real. I tried to help people. I did the best I could. 
I think one thing that you might want to consider is that when you're judged, you're not judged only on the good things that you did, but what about the bad things that you did? Look at verse 23. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You cannot look at only what you've done right. You also have to look at what you've done wrong. You've sinned. You've come short of the glory of God. God, because He is holy, He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. Not even one. It would violate His very nature. Many times when I ask people, are you 100% sure you're on your way to heaven? They say, yes. I say, explain to me why. They say, well, I do this good thing, this good thing, this good thing. They always talk about the good they do. They never they never say, well, even though I've done this, this, and this, I've done more good than that. They never bring up the bad. I should say rarely, rarely do people bring that up. You need to consider today that although it may be true of you, that you've made a noble effort. Let me be very honest. Your noble effort is not enough. All of us, at some point, to some extent, have fallen short of God's standard, of God's glory. And unless you repent, that is, take your trust out of what you're doing and place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from your iniquity and turn to the Lord Jesus and say, I'm going to trust Him to save me, not what I've done. Unless that happens, friend, the last thing you'll ever hear is God saying to you, depart. I never knew you. What a tragedy. Jesus said, If any man comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. What a wonderful promise. If you come to Christ today humbly and say, God, I admit it, I've, I've had what I thought was a relationship, but it was based on, on what other people had told me. It was based on my own opinions, my own thoughts and philosophies. I've never really taken time to, to look at what God has offered, and I've never accepted the offer, the free gift of salvation. If you will come to Christ, He will in no wise cast you out. You try to come any other way, and the last thing you'll hear is, go away. Oh, friend, we don't want that to happen. I want to ask you in closing today, have you come to the Savior? Have you been born again? Do you have a genuine relationship with God that starts with salvation? I'm going to ask you to, please, if you would, bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. We're going to have a moment just to reflect on this. And I'm going to close in prayer. But I want to encourage you, if you have any questions about this, if you need help with any of this, say, man, I, I've, I've always thought about it one way, but this, is, this has caused me to, to examine myself. And I've got some questions now. If you have questions and you would like to chat about it, would you please reach out to me? Please, please, oh friend, I would be greatly honored to help you Come to Christ. Greatly honored. Search your heart. Ask yourself, if I died today, would I be accepted in God's sight?
Or would he say, go away? Father, thank you for the opportunity to explain these things today. Lord, my intention today was only to communicate these very important truths about how a person not only can be saved, but have a relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to to let these words sink in, not just from today's sermon, but the entire series. As we look at this Sermon on the Mount, God, what we need to know about walking with you and fellowship with you. You've given us what we need. Help us now to apply it. Father, if there are any lost souls listening, please, oh God, prick their hearts. Thank you for your help today. Please, Lord, I pray you bring us back again around this virtual opportunity tonight at 6. We want to hear from you again. Help Brother Hills as he preaches, Lord. We want to be fed. Thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.